welcome back. This is episode 164 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And uh, this episode, we have a sort of snake-focused beginning, a, a question of snakes and gene flow, and they're sort of movements and and what could prevent that gene flow what could isolate snakes essentially how do you isolate a snake yeah we're talking about pretty cool snake as well exceptionally cool yeah quite a dense paper this one that we're going to talk about but it was uh an interesting story yeah nice to be back talking about snakes not nice to be like a million degrees right now in my little recording studio it's very hot here in the uk but uh yeah we're talking we're going somewhere hotter even we're going somewhere hotter even we're traveling to florida for this week's episode talking about the indigo snake a big beastie snake from America. Um, like a couple of meters, over a couple of meters. So supposedly the biggest one ever was 2.6 meters long. <sighs> That's a pretty big snake. It's a pretty big snake. It's 8.5 feet for those of you still living in the dark ages. And uh, yeah, they're big old beasties. We have to give some props actually for finding this paper because we didn't do it. We didn't do it. My friend Lauren Jeffrey did it. Uh, my old teammate from the snake tracking days in Bangor. So shouts to Loza. Miss you Loza. But yeah, she found this during the writing of our Escalapian snake paper. So we thought actually, yeah, it's a good excuse to talk about indigo snakes. Um, this gigantic American sort of purpley coloured snake, hence the name. Yeah, sort of bluish black in colour, aren't they? But apparently, I've never actually seen one in the flesh. But apparently if you um, sort of put it in the sunlight, it kind of shines an iridescent purple is supposed to be very nice i suppose that's where the sort of name indigo comes from then yes indigo by name indigo by color and uh yeah we'll introduce the paper this one's by bowder peterman spear jenkins whiteley and mcgarical published in 2021 multi-scale assessment of functional connectivity landscape genetics of eastern indigo snakes in an anthropogenically fragmented landscape in southern florida published in molecular ecology you're the one-stop shop for genes moleculars molecular genetic ecological bits and bobs <laughs> but yeah very cool yeah we're talking about these big beastie snakes indigo snakes what do they eat? They like eating anything, really, aren't they? They're sort of generalist predators. They get described as apex predators, but do they not have, like, mountain lions in Florida? Surely a mountain lion would take on an indigo snake for the title of apex predator. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole term apex predator is a little bit duff, isn't it? Right? <laughs> I like it. I don't know. I like the... I think it's important to think of ecosystems and landscapes in terms of having an absolute unadulterated <laughs> champion, because... <laughs> It contextualizes our existence. The absolute champion of the global Thunderdome. That's what you want. Undisputed. That's how I see myself when I go for a walk in the woods. That's how I see myself. Yeah. A returning um, champion. <laughs> <laughs> Witness me, Beatles, yeah, so and bow before your Lord. <laughs> I'll eat whatever I want here. So yeah, basically, yeah, they're these active foragers. They can move over one kilometers a day, probably a lot more than that, really. But that's sort of like what's been reported in spatial ecology studies. Some of the largest reported home ranges for terrestrial snakes, over 500 hectares. Not sure how that was calculated. Ben might have a thing or two to say about that. But yeah, they have big ranges. They move big distances. And apparently they can disperse up to over 20 kilometers. So that's how far they can When they're saying disperse there, they're talking about juvenile dispersal right 
A young snake grows up, needs to find a new home that it can call its own, and it sets out off into the world. That's actually amazing if they know that for juvenile snakes. They did say something in the paper about how um, male juveniles disperse further than females, which I also, mm. also thought was interesting. I suppose it's easier to study these things because the babies aren't actually that small. So you can sort of... I mean, it's, yeah, more one of the benefits of studying a larger snake is you've got a lot more scope for that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons... Oh, ages and ages ago, we covered that wonderful anaconda paper that was looking at the little anacondas, but a little anaconda is still quite a big snake by snake standards. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same for that um, paper about the Burmese python babies getting munched. Yes, exactly. Again yeah. A few episodes ago. But yes, yeah, so... Yeah, these big old snakes, uh, they are generalist predators. So they, yeah, they eat snakes, including venomous snakes. They'll also eat other indigo snakes, but they'll also eat most vertebrates like mammals and all that kind of stuff, probably lizards. They generally tend to avoid built up areas, but you won't find them in the city. They're not city slickers. And this study took place in Florida in the southern lake Wales Ridge, which is in Highlands County. This is a bit further north than the Everglades, but we're still in Peninsula, Florida. And this is an area which has lost... Around 80% of its native vegetation because of urbanization. So humans, either there's like towns or there's citrus groves or there's improved pasture for cattle, which is where you sort of like dish out a load of sort of um, nice, easy growing like clover and that kind of stuff that sort of enriches the soil and means that the cows have got something to eat. You can get more cows per unit area of land, whatever that might be but it sort of permanently, irreparably damages the land for native vegetation. Right. So yeah, a lot of this stuff's changed. The natural areas that are left, they're kind of this dry scrub, uh, dry woodland, something called sand hill, which is this um, sort of like dry, mostly piney, foresty stuff that burns regularly. So it sort of never reaches true forest levels. It keeps on burning. And then there's also wetlands, which either are forested or non-forested. Obviously being close to the Everglades, you'd expect there might be some moisture on the floor. And yeah, there are also these urban areas and, of course, roads, because humans like travelling around. And this, as we kind of alluded to at the start, is a population genetics study. So the authors essentially wanted to see how all the indigo snakes in this big 1,000 kilometres squared area were related to each other and see if they could work out, based on where they were sampling the genetics of these individuals. So they basically took scale clips from loads of indigo snakes all over this massive area and they wanted to see how they were all interrelated and see if they could pick out certain features of the landscape that were either benefiting them in terms of gene flow so you could see that animals were closely related despite long distances mm -hmm. or if there were sort of barriers and things which meant yeah. that they were actually distantly related despite being close together that's the trick isn't it is if they're close together you'd expect them to be more closely related just by it's just one of those like classic geography rules right Things more close together are more likely to be more related. They had 102 samples. You're asking how many how many snakes there were. 102. 102. Good yep. good sample size. Mm -hmm. They weren't uh, randomly sampled, however. So just bear that in mind. In sort of general, as there was, you know, snakes with their low detectability. I mean, we know this. We've talked about it many times. You kind of have to take to what you can get for a lot of snake studies. Because they're just too damn sneaky. They are. They are. But the reason they're interested in this is because of genetic bottlenecks. So if humans are, by building things, isolating small pockets of these snakes in small mini populations, you end up with genetic bottlenecks where everyone's cousins and they're all interbreeding together and it all gets a bit strange. And um, 
yeah, you end up with the potential for bad genes, essentially, or as scientists call them, deleterious alleles to um, manifest themselves and become more common in the population. And then that might affect the species ability to sort of adapt or even just survive and be effective. So uh, you don't want inbreeding depression. And that is what they were trying to set out and see if that was happening in these populations. And it worked quite well, actually, didn't it, this study? They did some very cool, very complicated methods, which, I mean, to be honest, they were quite I do want to touch a little bit on the methods. Okay, let's do Not it. in any substantial detail, but basically you're, the whole idea is you're trying to work out connectivity in a landscape from this data. So if you have snake A in location A and snake B in location B, and they're so related whatever numeric value you're assigning to their relatedness. And then you've got snake C, but snake C is super related to A, but is further away. It would potentially imply that there was lower connectivity between A and B than between A and C. But the trick with these is you're working with sort of geospatial data, you know, near sort of global coverage data sets that can be quite coarse, right? It's from satellite imagery, that sort of thing. But your snakes are operating on a much smaller scale and potentially some of your data is higher resolution some of its lower resolution and also snakes might have different sort of distances at which certain features become relevant or impact their movement and therefore that connectivity so roads will come into but roads are a nice one to think about because you can think of roads as being a very discrete relatively small feature you know it's just a line through a map essentially but the effect of roads might actually be a lot broader than the road itself so that sort of impact on connectivity could be a lot a lot wider maybe the snakes don't like actually going within a kilometer of some of these roads because of the associated changes near a road or something along those lines and you can't really predict that beforehand so essentially the methods were looking at different sort of scales of the impact of these different features and things. So they had stuff like, well, what you were talking about before, your different roads, urban, wetland, pasture, citrus, but they varied how how sort of broad those areas were in terms of their impact or their potential impacts on connectivity. And comparing all of, all of those, they could see which one best fit with their genetic data and then sort of back work what's causing the connectivity or what's limiting that connectivity. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So let's talk about what they found out, shall we? What was limiting connectivity and what was benefiting connectivity? I mean, you've kind of alluded to it a little bit there. It's not entirely surprising, really. Yeah. It's kind of exactly what you'd expect, isn't it? But it's it still... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, if you, you know, if you had a gun to my head, I would have actually survived. And yes, yeah. this correctly. But yeah, it's indigo snakes. So generally... If there's a large amount of undeveloped and varied habitats, so those kind of nice mixture of natural habitats that I was discussing earlier, yep. that promotes indigo snake gene flow. If it, if these are areas which, you know, the snakes can actually easily travel through safely, then they will and they will therefore intermix and be genetically varied across those sort of non-barriers. The flip side of that, what you've alluded to, Ben, urbanization restricts indigo snake gene flow they're not crossing towns in order to find mates it's just not possible for them there's too much danger and madness in the city for these snakes and so that is kind of exactly as you'd expect quite unsurprising it just makes perfect sense that these things you know towns are barriers to the snakes the one thing i thought was really interesting 
was that roads didn't represent a significant barrier to the snake in terms of they popped up as like a high a high resistance thing in the models but not so much so that they are actually preventing like gene flow so it's high resistance but not high enough to cause complete isolation yeah so they're tricky to get across yeah but not impossible yeah, but not impossible. The s- snakes don't like crossing roads generally. Like, I mean, that's quite a big generalization, but they will cross them if they have to. And the re- they think there might be a few reasons. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the road too, as well as the snake. Doesn't I mean, that's. I think generally, yeah, what you're saying is right, but it's one of those very species by species, road by road sort of situations, isn't it? Yeah, and like, yeah, it really depends on the type of road as well. You know, a big highway is very different than a country exactly, lane, for example. Yeah. But... um. Yeah, indigo snakes generally apparently don't like crossing roads, but they will if they need to. And, you know, sometimes snakes do cross roads. So they did expect to see that there'd be like this genetic signature where roads formed a barrier to gene flow, but they didn't see that. And it's interesting because it could be that the snakes are crossing roads infrequently, but frequently enough at like a population level that they are actually still managing to mix across the roads. So although they were maybe not crossing roads every day, you know, once in a few generations, a snake will cross the road and spread its genes. And so there's not this signature of roads forming this barrier. Yep. The other possibility they suggest, which is potentially likely, is that the roads just haven't been in place long enough to kind of begin this genetic separation. Yeah. And they said yeah. some of the roads have been in place for like 20 or 25 indigo snake generations which you'd think would be enough which kind of suggests that maybe they are crossing them occasionally enough that they are still managing to maintain gene transfer across the roads but um yeah who knows in another 50 years if there are still native habitats left in this area we can come back and see like maybe there will then be a genetic signature of roads there is evidence in other papers that like roads can form a barrier which you can detect in the genes of snakes i think they did that with adders in sweden or something didn't that they? was that wall um, wasn't it the sweden oh, was it a wall oh yeah that big yeah. old wall yeah that was the wall that extinct made the population go extinct wasn't it they took a hit from it it yeah. was an island population if i'm remembering correctly I, yeah yeah but you know i mean i always think it here in the uk mate like we build these roads like right now the the road that goes across the top of Wales, A55. It's almost like they've set out to make it as deliberately impenetrable to wildlife as mm-hmm. humanely possible. It's like, not only have you got like four lanes of road, you've also got like a giant concrete barrier one side that's like, I mean, four feet tall maybe. Yeah. Whatever that is in metres. Who am I saying? Feet, gosh. But yeah, then again, and there's another concrete wall in the middle and then there's another concrete wall on the other side. And you just think like... Only the most nimble, acrobatic and brave animals are possibly ever going to be able to cross this. So it's probably only a matter of time before we either have to start giving due consideration to this or, yeah, we're going to be able to see these genetic signatures in lots and lots of different animals where they're failing to cross the roads. Well, that's assuming that the isolated populations on one side or the other don't disappear. So your genetic signature is those ones no longer exist (laughs) because they didn't have enough. And we know that's affecting adders as, as your example. So... I don't know. This one with the indigos, it seems like kind of a good news sort of story for now, with a heavy caveat of mm, it might not just be, it might still be in the works, it might not be there yet. But um, I feel initially it's kind of a good news, uh, good news story, because yeah, I think they so. are getting across these roads. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of connectivity, which is really good. And it's nice to see um, a really thorough take on this 
for such a cool snake. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. hopefully there'll be more. I'm sure there'll be more stuff coming like this. Um, but yeah. There was an additional sort of like bonus for that road thing that it was suggesting that the genetic diversity, the gene flow was more connected to juvenile dispersal, like you were saying with those big 22 kilometer moves rather than gene flow prompted by like a an individual's home range overlapping a road. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah. So individual snakes aren't generally incorporating roads into their home ranges. They'll sort of turn around. But that I'm seems not. to be what everything, or at least the way I'm reading it, because you've got high resistance from the roads, so you wouldn't have an individual going back and forth lots of times if it's high resistance. But it's not complete resistance. And I think they were saying the best fitting models were the broad landscape level stuff. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean... My limited experience of tracking snakes and roads are that the ones that didn't cross roads survived. <laughs> and yeah, well, that yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing, isn't sweet. it? You do yeah. have a yeah. uh, pretty hefty selective pressure for not getting squished. Yeah, snakes and roads just do not mix. They're too long. They're too long. It takes too long to get across. Yeah. And they don't understand the danger. You need some culverts, some bridges. Need some culverts, bridges. Yeah. Yeah, some nice, some of those like squirrel rope ladders that they do. Yeah, or the gibbon bridges, that'd do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, lovely. All right, cool. There we go. That's uh, an investigation into the sort of um, landscape genetics of the indigo snake. They're mixing despite all the urbanisation, they're managing to make it happen. They're hanging in cool. there, it seems. <laughs> yeah, they are. So let's move on from one species gosh, I don't know what how on earth we could segue between these two species. They're both quite cool. <laughs> and reptilian and reptilian all right this is a paper by laurem sanger 2023 just one author no i was gonna say who else we got ah one sanger vaberi Urlai and Mirza, published in 2023 in Salamandra, the German Journal of Herpetology, and it is entitled A New Species of Parachute Gecko of the Subgenus Tycozune from the Indo-Burma region. So, we're talking about a pretty nifty little gecko here. Oh, yes. So, they used to be called Tycozune. But now they're not. They're called Gecko again now, and Tycozoon's been relegated to a subgenus, which I miss because Tycozoon is so cool. It sounds like a Pokemon. It's a pretty cool-sounding genus, yeah. Yeah, but it's no longer a genus. It's a subgenus. I think it was in, like, 2020. uh, There's a paper by Wood et al., which basically said, look, Tycozoon are nested within Gecko, so they just have to be called Gecko. Oh, uh, I see. They will just, like buried within it not even like a yeah okay yeah so they're back to being gecko yeah so 13 species up till now obviously always a likelihood that more species will be discovered but they're really cool they're known as parachute geckos they're these nocturnal arboreal geckos so they live in the trees and they have this cool lifestyle which revolves around both being super hard to spot very good crypsis they're really well camouflaged but they also have this like flappy skin on their sides and on their feet and that means they can paraglide they call it paragliding in this one not parachuting which is interesting i think that paragliding is a more complimentary term to these geckos and i'm all for it so yes from ben yep 
And yeah, so essentially in 2001, so we're going back a few years now, Power and Biswas reported this species, which is Tycho, which was one it's being split off from. Gecko lionotum basically was discovered to be living in Mizoram in northeast India. And that was like 700 kilometers. It's like to the, the northwest east you can go in India. Mizoram borders Myanmar. So it's east of Bangladesh, west of Myanmar, in that section, right at the bottom of it. Yeah, it looks like there's no business being part of India, really. And interestingly, and that's not some kind of like political thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean anything by it. But um, I'm actually going there, mate, on Saturday. I'm going to Mizoram. Oh, so uh, yeah, I'm hoping to find see this gecko. gecko. Yeah, I will. And if I can find it, I'll take a picture of it. And I'll also try and record any little sounds it makes. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that'd be podcasty. a treat. I mean, that's very optimistic. Oh, well, he's promised it now. You've what... heard it all here first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let us down. <laughs> Exciting. But yeah, this is really cool, cool new spe- cool new species. Obviously, being 700 kilometers away, when herpetologists or any other taxonomists see an animal that lives 700 kilometers away from all its, re- its fellow relatives, get they, get, they get a little bit excited and suspicious. Yeah, like, wait a hmm, second. That's a long way away, isn't it? Is that an isolated? Could that, be a, uh, could that be a candidate species? And sure enough, that's what they've done. They've decided to do the genetic work, the morphological investigations. And uh, yeah, they've described this population of geckos from Mizoram as a brand new species. And they've called it gecko. What is it? Is it Mizoramensis? Yeah. Gecko Mizoramensis. Lovely. Lovely. Straight into exactly the point. That. So the gecko of Mizoram. And yeah, it's a really cool little thing. I mean, we talked about the genus having these like sort of parachute sides of the legs and um, sort of belly. And this one's no different. It's got really nice sort of, well, it's quite a beautiful gecko on top. It's like sort of grey with some... Very stony. Little, very, very stony, stony grey. bands. Yeah. I think they can blend it on rocks and trees. They're one of those geckos. They could go either way. Yeah. I imagine they're probably jumping out. Well, and a bit of a paler grey fits with some lichens, doesn't it? So, oh, true that. Yeah, but you know, hard to spot. I've seen similar species in Malaysia, and they're just super cool. And they, you know, if you threaten them, they will fly. I've never actually seen that. Um, never threaten them. You know, I was well, that's... treat them kindly. <laughs> but, probably um, a good yeah. idea. Yeah, leave them be. <laughs> but even on their like legs, they've got flappy skin. Even around their neck, there looks to be a little flat bit of yeah, flabby skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they've got these really nice big fat gecko toes with like skin in between to help them in their paragliding, which we now know to call it, instead of uh, parachuting, which I do like. Although um, they have said that the English common name for this species is Mizram parachute gecko. Oh, well, can't have it all. Mizram paraglide gecko. Par- yeah, I suppose parachute gecko... Sounds a bit better than Mizram Paraglide Gecko. Yes, it does. Yeah. You can see why they did that. Yeah. But um, how big do they grow? About 10 centimetres SVL. Oh, so pretty, pretty modest little gecko. Yeah, with another 10 centimetres of tail. Okay, yeah, yeah. And they're from this um, nice tropical moist evergreen forest. Um, lots of rainfall. Um, the forest and the terrain where they're from are connected to forests in Myanmar and Bangladesh. So this species is probably found there as well. But that's great. Like it, It's got quite a broad range of forests. They're reported from a, a wildlife sanctuary. So it looks like they're probably not in immediate peril, which is cool. 
but apparently they're not common, but that might just be because they're super hard to spot. Yes, they're very super cryptic. They've sort of summarized it as like, okay, they should probably be classed as data deficient. We don't know much about them, which I think is a perfectly reasonable conclusion to have drawn from for a newly described species. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But certainly a really nice, cool species. Yeah, maybe I'll actually get a chance to see one. Oh, that I hope be... so, mate. I hope so. Fingers awesome. crossed. That'd Cheers. be an absolute treat. Yeah. So, have you got any other business for this week, Ben? I don't know no, any other business from me. Okay, well, I've just got a quick bit. So, we've got some new patrons. So, I'd just like to thank Milo, Christopher and Haley, bunch of absolute legends. Heroes, um, yeah, thank you. Super, super cool that people um, donate to keep the podcast going. And yeah, it means a hell of a lot. So, thank you very much. Huge amount, yeah. If, yeah, it's, it's actually really awesome. It makes me feel warm glow inside. <laughs> And if you wanted to do the same, you can become our Patreon at patreon.com slash help highlights or just listen for free. It's up to you. And yeah, I haven't got anything else. I don't think so. Yeah, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. If you want to get in touch, you can, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with some corrections, if we've completely butchered anything, or if you've recently completed some interesting work on reptiles and amphibians, send it to us. We might do a podcast episode on it. But yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>